From 11FS, I'm Simon Taylor, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you US lenders prepare for a recession, Halifax gets slammed for looking a little bit too much like Monzo installing in their rebrand, and Facebook call time on their UK peer-to-peer payments. All this and much, much more on today's show. Okay, welcome to episode 315 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS office in Devonshire Square, London. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Sarah Kachansky. How are you, Sarah? I am good. I am I am recovering. I have had two weeks, the worst cold in the world, honestly. The lug is going around London. In it's a, horrendous. In, in a big, big way. It's to flu tech insider. Oh. Well, actually, if anybody wants to listen to the episode, the most recent episode of InsureTech Insider, I'm doing a really bad impression of a Kathleen Turner impersonator. Yeah. My voice is that low and that gravelly. But I'm back on form. Back on form. And back with us, we have some awesome guests as well. Uh, making a show debut, in fact, is uh, Ben, how do I say your last name? Gleisner. Ben Gleisner, who is CEO and co-founder at Kogo. That's the one. Yep. Uh, who've just secured £300,000 raise. Tell us more. Yeah, all good. We're um, a Kiwi company. So I was working as an economist at the Treasury in New Zealand, and we'd raised a couple of million out of New Zealand. But we decided the company called Kogo was uh, ready for the world. So we um, came here, moved the family, and we found a few investors that were like, we really want to get on board. So Kogo is a platform that helps you connect uh, consumers with businesses that are doing good on people on the planet. So it's a a bit of a fintech for good, I like to think. I like the sound of that, my friend. And of course, welcoming back, Freddie Kelly, who's CEO of Credit Kudos, who've just secured a £2.2 million raise. Can you tell us more? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me back, first and foremost. Um, yeah, we've just raised some more money. Um, we, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, so, so Credit Kudos is a credit bureau. We're taking on Experian, Equifax and TransUnion, the incumbents in that world. Uh, and we've just, we've just secured money um, to help us do that, uh, including investment from some of the former CEOs and, and top brass from some of those uh, credit bureaus themselves. So exciting, exciting times. Exciting times. Great to hear it as well. Um, we need more uh, transparency and goodness in the whole world of credit scoring for sure. Alrighty. Um, and finally, for the seventh time on Fintech Insider, the one and only Simon Vance Kalina, engineer at Monzo. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me back. Thanks for being back. Something about you guys and funding and rumors? We're not going there? No? Nope. Okay, we're moving swiftly on. All right. Um, welcome to the show. Great to have you all with us. Let's get started, shall we? Um, the first story is about U.S. lenders preparing for a recession. Uh, the story comes from Reuters, and apparently worrying that a recession is coming, the U.S. lenders are looking to reduce risks, specifically Lending Club, Cabbage, Avant LLC. They're all starting to scrutinize loan quality a lot more, more <laughs> funnily enough. It makes you wonder, were they not doing that before? Um, unlike banks, which tend to have lower cost and more stable deposits, Online lenders rely on market funding that can be harder to come by in times of stress. Uh, And their underwriting methods also include analysis of non-traditional data. So it's not just they're going to the market for funding. They've got different underwriting, apparently. Uh, Any thoughts on this one? Well, the interesting thing for me is that... um First of all, they're not all reliant on market funding. Um, mm. People like Cabbage have got quite a lot of other ways of securing their loans. In fact, Cabbage in Europe is actually a technology platform rather than a, than a lender. But um, in the US, yes, they do underwrite their own loans. Um, I think the really interesting thing for me is that, like, you know, um, there was sort of a news out this week that JP Morgan had posted good results, so that that headed off the idea of a recession. Well, Scott Sanborn, who's the the CEO of Lending Club, said it's not if it's when and it's not five years away. Um, just, I mean, I, I just to, to the point 
one point to make there is that, yes, they look at non-traditional data. So maybe they have insight that other people don't have at this point is interesting. Um, well, yeah. I think is interesting. Lending is a cyclical business. Anyone who thinks it's not is wrong. It's just been a really, really long 10-year period. I was at a breakfast the other day and uh, one of those Chatham House, no one talks about at breakfasts. But You're not going to break a lot of, uh, bank <laughs> tell us, CEOs, tell us <laughs> A lot of bank CEOs, including the Bank of England, um, were saying that it's been 10 years and like the departments, all the institutional knowledge about how to cope in that period of recession, that period of downturn, it's gone. Yeah. Like banks have slowly been, you know, gutting the departments that handle that sort of like um, collections and, and, and accounts and arrears to the point now where like they've lost a lot of institutional knowledge because it's been such a boom period for so long. Is it, I mean, and it's not a bad, sorry, do you want to come friend? I was just going to say, I mean, the, the, the thing about uh, alternative risk is quite interesting because, you know, SoFi kind of coined this like Henry high earning, not rich yet market where they basically lend to like Ivy Leaguers and, and assume the best. And, and it's quite interesting to to kind of contrast that to the, the fact, obviously, like it's still an early business and, um, you know, past performance doesn't necessarily equal future. Um, and, you know, although those people right now are in good positions in, in on paper, they're good, you know, will they have the same growth and, and uh, salary opportunities as their parents' generations and the people that come before them. And I think they're kind of banking quite a bit on on perhaps that that, that just sort of following this cycle. And, it just and, keeps going. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but my, point, my point was to make was that people like Lending Club in particular, I mean, Lending Club has messed up. A few of these guys have got this wrong. They've got these models wrong and it's been very public and very painful and they've had to go back and recalibrate. Hmm. So if anything, I think to sort of counter Simon's point, if anybody's learned a lot recently, it's these guys. They they have had made mistakes. They've made mistakes in their calculations. They've had loan books go wildly awry and suffered horribly for it. So I don't think it's surprising that they're being cautious. Hmm. I also do agree with the point that there is there is a break point coming. And, you know, if you've already been burned once, you can let yourself be burned twice. Well, the banks may be, but these guys are going, no, I don't think so. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I remember at Treasury when I was there in 2009 and the whole sort of, you know, has it, has it unfolded, you'd think 10 years on from now, A, they would have learned a bit, but also there'd be better data around things to do with the stuff. I don't know. I just think that there's this big data wave going on around trying to make better informed decisions. You'd think the lenders would actually know a little bit more. Maybe it's a sort of, you know, non-financial. I think that's sort of to Sarah's point a little bit, isn't it? Some have, some haven't. Um, Post-2008, some people just set up because nobody was lending. None of the big banks were lending. So there was an opportunity to make money by lending coming out of a recession. Some of them seem to have taken the data-driven model and being able to be doing something genuine. Some of them have already already messed up. But the one thing you consistently heard from banks was, uh, we'll see those guys in the next recession. And actually, I always thought that was a bit too sort of binary. I think you will see some Um, of them come out of the wash inevitably in the next recession. But also, there is something to be said for looking at data in smart new ways to identify profitable risk that wasn't there before. And I think people forget that Zopa went through a recession and is still standing. So Zopa was founded before the recession and was lending before the recession and is still going. Indeed. Um, so I don't think, you know, I, I think this, let's point to the recession and see how it works for them. I, I don't think that argument holds much ground but anymore. But Zopa have gone for a banking license. Yeah, yeah, but they have, but they, but they are still working as a, as a lender. They were actually one of the first lend, uh, alternative lenders to be profitable. I mean, whether they are still profitable, given how much they've outlaid and everything else, is, is but that's... Uh, I think that's beside, that's beside my point. It's not beside the point. Yeah, well said. All right. Um, well, we spoke to our America's MD, Sam Moore, to get his take on whether a recession could be imminent. So let's hear from him now. We are 10 years into one hell of a bull market run. The recovery since 2008 has been almost unprecedented, but there are worrying signs of an economic slowdown, and we all need to be paying attention to the canaries in the coal mine. 
In the U.S., there are traditionally three strong economic indicators. There's consumer debt, auto and credit card delinquencies and defaults, and mortgage delinquencies and defaults. So let's take a quick look at consumer auto debt in particular. U.S. consumer debt. In 2018, late December, U.S. consumer credit card debt hit $870 billion. That represented the highest total ever, according to the Federal Reserve. On top of that, you got U.S. student debt, which reached $1.57 trillion. In the fourth quarter last year, 3.2% of bank-issued credit card loans were at least 30 days late. That's the highest point since 2011. That's data provided by American bankers. America also paid banks $113 billion in credit card interest in 2018. I mean, you talk about revolving debt. That's a study done by Magnify Money. That's up 12% from interest paid in 2017 and about 50% increase over the past five years. So there's that canary singing. What about auto loans? Well, the late payment rate for bank auto loans is up around 2.08%. That's the highest level since 2012. Business Insider had a recent article in March that noted a lot of this is attributable to a surge in auto lending and the degradation of lending standards between 2011 and 2017. So basically, we got more subprime borrowers than ever. The Federal Reserve reported the number of borrowers with auto loans more than 90 days delinquents. It actually shot up to 1.5 million in the fourth quarter. So this reached a total of 7 million. That's the highest mark ever in absolute numbers. And a lot of articles were written that this was a big red flag. But please take this with a grain of salt. U.S. auto loans have grown steadily from under about $800 billion in 2011 to roughly $1.3 trillion in the fourth quarter of 2018. There's always more to the story. So a lot of numbers. What do you do with all that? What does it all mean? In my opinion, you got a lot of canaries singing. I'm just not 100% sure what tune it is just yet. Alrighty, thank you, Sam. Singing canaries and all. Uh, Simon, you wanted to add a point there? No, just I heard bond yields are inverted. Yeah, they've inverted a couple of times in the last six months, actually. So the um, the yield curve inversion is typically when you see uh, the long-term lower than the short-term or the short-term higher than I'm getting dyslexic. I about do it, computers. But, but, really but yeah, that thing um, is usually a, sign, a signal of recession is coming. So um, the, yeah, the canaries are singing, it seems. All righty, next story. Um, RBS challenges the challenges with Bo. Um, so RBS is stepping into the digital challenger turf, according to the Financial Times. Despite uh, buying NatWest almost 20 years ago, RBS still uses different IT systems at the two banks. Bo, their new digital-only consumer bank, in contrast, has been built apparently in a little over a year on a completely new cloud-based system. And it says it will launch to the public later this year. Mark Bailey, the Bo CEO, said they're hoping to attract a few million current accounts to Bo over the next five years, with a focus on the 17 million UK residents who have less than £100 in savings. It will do things like analyse customer spending data uh, to drive people towards saving money. Mr. Bailey said it would be cheaper for Bo to be financially sustainable because it would benefit more from customer deposits. Newer challenger banks tend not to do large amounts of lending, whereas Bo customer deposits could be lent out across RBS. Interesting, interesting points here. What, what is, what's everybody's thoughts on this one? They should um, get a name you can Google for stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that name has an accent in case anybody's missed that Ooh. as well. Have you ever tried putting an accent on a UK keyboard? It's I, mean, not I still don't easy. know where their web address is. I don't know how to like look them up on the I internet. Mean, BO has some some bad connotations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, 
yeah, I, I, I thought it was interesting that they picked up on on financial resilience and this idea of working with the um, the nudge department, whatever their technical term is. It yeah, treasury one, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah to to kind of provide people. Um, you know, informed insights. And I mean, obviously none of that's new, um, but it, it's quite use, interesting to see a bank really f- of that scale really focusing on people with, you know, low financial resilience, you know, low sort of ability to deal with income shock. You know, they talked about the 7 million people or so that, that have less than £100 in savings. So mm-hmm. I thought that was really positive. It's, sorry, it's interesting to target a slightly different market than perhaps we've seen some of the other, the other sort of new banks go after. I just, I'm, I'm slightly confused as to how they're going to go about it because they also say they don't mind if they're the secondary account. Okay, yeah, fine, we've heard that a, before. They're calling it a companion bank yeah, now. But if it's a companion bank account and it's my secondary bank account, how on earth do you know what my financial status is and how on earth do you provide me with actually informed nudges and behavioural nudges if you don't know what else is going on? So if all you know is that I get £200 into that uh, once a month, which is my fun money, and I never go overdrawn because that's the way I budget, then great, it looks like I'm in great financial shape. But you don't know that my main account where my salary comes into is heavily overdrawn and there are a million different credit card payments going out of it and, and, and. So I understand the theory, but the practice is is, is off somewhat for me. But wouldn't somebody throw exactly the same accusation at the challengers like Monzo? But Monzo, forgive me, Simon, I may be putting words in your mouth, hasn't said you're going after low resiliency customers. You haven't said you're particularly going after this. So, so for, for me, for them to say this, it says, look, we're going after a demographic that's underserved and we want to help you. We want to make you better. Not necessarily at managing your money, but we want to help you, you know, um, financially... St- you know, become more financially stable. I don't believe that's a claim that Monzo's ever made. No, we, we I mean we started off as a as a prepaid card, so a companion account by definition. But like what we've seen is that what people want is they want a main bank account that gives them the tools they need to budget. Like so, we have pots, so people put their savings into their pots and they split up their money that way, all within the one account. So I think um, I'm not sure that like the idea of a companion account that's like completely divorced from your main account really works. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd you know celebrate the fact that they're trying to think about something around, you know, supporting social, you know, good. But I mean, companion accounts for people that have got less than a hundred pounds in savings, it's like how many bank accounts are people like this going to actually have really in practice? Um, and the second point probably is around, I mean, coming here from New Zealand and coming into the UK, into the banking system, I mean, man, it's like anything that moves some of these big banks away from their own current systems would be an absolute celebration because it is atrocious. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I was wondering, I, I saw in the article, it talks about marketplaces. Um, I'm not sure what exactly that meant from reading it, because it, it felt like they just <coughs> needed to mention marketplaces to put it in there. But maybe maybe the players that they, they aggregate, uh, you know, it's like... Freddie, we don't read the articles. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I read one. It's an interesting point, which is, I think the, the marketplace model hasn't proven itself yet. Like, who's going to be in the marketplace? How are you going to make money from them? We're seeing green shoots. You know, uh, Starling were probably the first. We're seeing a number of the challenges now. I think uh, Monza did with Oak North. We're starting to see beginnings of that, but it, it's not yet proven. So um, it, there's some interesting interesting points coming out here. But the point to me was was kind of um, a, a stepping back from RBS and Bo into, like, 
banks doing challenges. You know, you've seen Marcus by Goldman, you've seen Standard Chartered, which last month got their um, virtual banking license in Hong Kong. A whole suite of virtual banking licenses by CYBG. Yeah, it's been around. Uh, maybe a while, they're just going to add a letter. They'll take. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just just to revisit your point, um, they didn't say that Bo was doing a marketplace. They said it com- it's comparable to Monzo, which has said it wants to help people manage their money with a marketplace. Right. So right. they they were like, well, Monzo's doing a marketplace. So that's that's you know interesting. My, my trade. My train of thought was, um, again, breaking some Chatham House rules. Um, but the, having spoken to people at that bank um, in a sort of a previous world... You know, but they Bo, to, not Monzo. RBS. Um, RBS. <laughs> yeah, but they, they, they've talked about, you know, for example, in the, the context of the Wonga debacle, yeah. that they could actually have lent to a lot of the Wonga customers had they like, built the product around that. And I'm just thinking, you know, there are these swathes of customers, particularly underserved, that banks aren't very good at. And if they were to build it, in such a way that they can at least introduce people to the services that are good at that. And perhaps this might be a conduit to do there's that. There's a great opportunity for social good if you could do responsible lending at low cost. And exactly. I think there's, there's, there's an opportunity there that, that's definite. Uh, what's interesting to me as well, though, is the significance put on profitability um, that, you know, from a from a VC-backed startup perspective, profitability follows long after growth. The first thing is get MAUs, get daily active users, and then you know, prove to me that you can make the unit economic works at unit economics work at some point in the future. But if you're growing and I think you can get profitable, keep growing. Like, don't worry about profit for a while. Whereas the banks are in a very different position. They seem to want these challenger banks to be profitable immediately, having not looked at sort of the J curve or the S curve models that you see in startup life. <clears throat> Totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he did make one concession. He said it would be lower margin. So it's profitable, but it will be lower margin. But I know. wonder if this is just a little bit of alternate reality thinking here, because like the journey for these things. I mean, Monza was founded in 2014. Um, now reaching the point with millions of customers, you know, profitable on unit economics. But my understanding is is not profitable net net. Um, maybe that's coming in the future. But still, like this, that's a five-year journey at least. So to expect these things to be profitable early, I don't know if that's that's always the right thinking. But it seems to be certainly we've gone from you know is it going to be the big techs or the or the challenger banks? Well, actually now you've got big finance doing their own challenges. Yacht by ING, Marcus by Goldman, uh, Metal of course um, by uh, by NatWest and now Bo. There's going to be probably a lot more of these, I suspect. Alrighty, next story this week. Uh, N26 are apparently in trouble with German regulators over their hypergrowth. Um, so N26, uh, this story comes from uh, Yahoo Finance, uh, has become the second billion dollar European banking startups to face questions over compliance. BaFin, uh, Germany's financial regulator, has identified, quote, numerous shortcomings related to staffing levels outsourcing, and engineering. Interesting. Uh, Barfin's criticism centered around the fact that processes and staffing levels at N26 had not kept up with its growth. Barfin ordered changes after, at the bank after a special audit, and customer complaints have piled up at the bank with people saying they were locked out of their accounts after being targeted by phishing attacks. And a German website that I'm not even going to try and pronounce recently reported that N26's customer service team did not react for several weeks to a Berlin customer having £80,000 stolen from their bank account. I mean, this seems like a litany of stuff going on. Uh, Tom spoke to us about... Um the challenges that other challenges are facing um, at our team meeting last week and, and had this amazing analogy, which is that it's very easy to build a, like a, a top fuel drag race car that can go very, very fast. But if it tries to turn a corner, it will catch on fire and everyone will die. 
Mm-hmm. And it's really, really important that we like are super aware of like how important it is what we do. Like if people get locked out of their finances, if you if you make a mistake about blocking someone's account, like it has real impacts on people's lives and literally people could die. Mm. Um, so what we what we've been told, what we're trying to internalize and what we try to think about with when it comes to regulatory compliance and, and treating the customer fairly at all times and and scaling things correctly is that we're not building a, a hyper fuel you know, drag car, we're building a Formula One car. It has to go fast, but also it has to be able to stop quickly and turn quickly. Yeah, I mean, I I think the obvious comparison to me is to Revolut, which has seen, not the obvious comparison, but for a company that's had hyper growth and has come um, in, you know, come a cropper when it comes to regulation, I think um, it it springs to mind and many of the articles that were written about this actually drew that comparison. Also, that story at the end, like N26's customer service team did not respond. That's almost identical to Revolut had a customer who sued them because they didn't respond to his um, complaint about somebody moving £80,000 from his account. It's almost identical. Um, the, the the interesting thing to me when you look at N26 compared to Revolut is N26 was accused of just letting things fly, whereas, uh, and sorry, Revolut was accused of letting things fly and letting things slip through, whereas N26 has completely clamped down and gone the other way. And to me, that's just sort of like, oh, Germans, too much risk shut everything down. Um, but I know I completely agree with your point. I think that there is the danger of you can build and scale these super fast front ends, but it's the stuff at the back end has to come with it. You can't do the fancy front end and follow up when it's regulation and it's finance. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, and as in sort of coming new to this uh, market, there's a lot more activity in these sort of bigger sort of, you know, I guess many way challenger, but getting quite big. And I guess Yes, you can grow, you know, have a car that goes fast. My question is like, what are you doing with the things that you hit along the way? And, you know, what are your sort of wider social environmental type sort of things? And I have spoken to an unnamed um, bank uh, that we just talked about. And uh, the response I got around, well, what are you doing around your purpose? How are you looking at your social and environmental sort of good? Because these are things that, you know, Mark Caney today, uh, the governor of the Bank of England said, like, you aren't just here to like make some money for your shareholders. You're actually here as a financial institution to provide some good in the world. And uh, the person we spoke to was like, ah, the founders of this bank, don't give a shit about anything else but profit. And I was like, well, that's the conversation over. We're out of, <laughs> out of this room now because, you know, that doesn't, yeah. I, f- I feel like you could foresee a lot of these. It's that kind of, similar with Facebook, it's that move fast and break things, kind of a, a mantra that then when things break, it's actually like, oh, we're really like a significant business now in banking, so cru- crucial to people's lives. One thing that I, I did notice is the the comment on, on staffing levels, which I can completely believe is valid, but given the whole, one of the, the sort of, arbitrages of a, a neo bank without any bank branches or without any you know huge overheads from a people perspective I, I wonder whether the regulator is kind of viewing them with the same lens as a traditional bank and saying you need this number of people per customer and I, I did wonder the same thing it's like actually oh you're having problems you need to hire more people yeah. is that jumping to the to the wrong solution to the problem so actually with N26 they have very interesting customer services the point I'm going to make so in Germany um, they have an online chat um, and uh, I don't believe you have a phone line, but you have an online chat or an email, um, very similar to the service Monza offers, but they only do it during working yes, hours. Yeah, right. In the UK, they do not have online chat. It's kind of grayed out. You can only email a request for help. So if you're talking about like customer service, like help, I've got a problem, it's very specific hours. And I did some work on this recently, um, and 26 is the only bank that does not, only digital only bank that does not offer 24-hour service. So when you look at that, that's an interesting conundrum. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the other thing to, to, to be looking at here as well with with, with kind of the, the speed of growth is just back to your point, Freddie, I saw somebody the other day and they said, well, we're not, you know, Uber did it. Like, you know, just grow first and think about regulators later. And I was like, 
They do cars, not financial services. And arguably Uber didn't work out for them either. So like using that as an argument just feels so incredibly flawed. Yeah, and I think that's, We've seen this trend um, consistently now of these hyper-growth companies hit the wall, both in big tech and now, unfortunately, with the challenger banks. And what concerns me is that that starts to become the narrative um, that actually, oh, you can grow really quickly, but oh, look what happens when you do. You need the the strong and stable old banks. Um, You need the ones that have been around for 200 years. And and actually, you could see how older banks would play to that marketing narrative. It's like, well, our app isn't the best, but, you know, we're not going to mess over and fall over. Can can strong and stable worked out so well? for the British government. As <laughs> and and nobody, nobody writes an article about successes. Nobody writes an article about how Monzo's got to 1.56... 1, 1.81. 1.81 million um, accounts without having any regulatory slip-ups. Nobody's written that story yet because nobody likes a success story. It's not as juicy in the, in the press. No. And I think it's not as juicy for banking executives who have to tell a story to the market and to shareholders about why they can compete yes. um, against something that's acquiring customers at a rate of knots and that it can do so at a far better cost-income ratio on, a, on unit economics uh, and doesn't need to lend as much to customers to be profitable. And coming back to the social good point, yep. if I don't have to lend to you to make you profitable as a customer, or if I do, I only lend far less and only when you need it, mm. then I'm doing more social good over time the aggregate effect of that might be that people see that as more trustworthy mm. and that uh, thing that the big banks always talk about is well we've been around for n hundred years so people trust us more i think the one thing that you can see um, a number of organizations starting to move towards is how do we demonstrate that we really are transparent and trustworthy and doing that in the digital age i don't think is about having a, a logo on the high street i think it's about the behaviors and the and the techniques and and how you communicate and everything you do right through the organization yep. Alrighty, next story. Um, this one is the 86400 score a home run. And of course, this is the Aussie Challenger Bank 86400. Story comes from Finextra. Um, they've got a home loan distribution deal. Um, so they're a step closer to launching home loan products after securing a national distribution deal with a mortgage broker. Um, this means that they can deliver home loans via their financial network of over 1,200 brokers since um, once it secures its full banking license, of course, uh, which it doesn't yet have uh, from the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. The bank has already inked deals with mortgage application software providers, Sympology and Loanworks to help buy, uh, build its platform. So it sounds like there's a, a network of brokers. They've signed a deal with a network of brokers. They've signed a deal with some software vendors who are going to put that together. Challenger banks are coming to Australia, Sarah. Oh, Challenger banks already in Australia, very <laughs> much so. Um, the interesting thing for me here is that you've got sort of three, well, possibly four, three or four front runners in the Australian Challenger bank market. You've got Up, you've got Vault, you've got 86,400 or 86,400, however you're supposed to say it. Did you ask Anthony Thompson how to why? say it? Why? Yeah, so um, I it's actually interviewed him. That, that, uh, like that, that interview with Anthony Thompson will be coming up in the next couple of weeks so stay tuned for the answer to that question so mean Um, (laughs) and Zinja and you've got Zinja I was getting to Zinja I just paused to think about the the silly name Um, (laughs) (laughs) silly names ago today Um, but my point was that so Zinja has followed a model forgive me uh, forgive me Monzo forgive me Simon similar to Monzo uh, where they've got a prepaid card already in people's hands so it's kind of a current account model and they've already got that out there and they're testing have you seen Up's cards I have seen Up's cards we'll have a conversation about that later 
um, and upper out there too, but they've kind of gone after this current account market. Um, and what it looks like 86,400 are doing is taking a slightly different tack, going down the loan, you know, getting loans out there first, probably loans and, and savings, I imagine. And we've seen that model work very well in the UK. You look at sort of Oak North. I mean, they combined it with SME, which is like the, the perfect storm. Um, but even people like Atom, you know, going a slightly different way and making a success of it that way. And I think when you've got, you know, three or four new banks coming to market at almost exactly the same time, you're going to have to find a way to make yourself stand out a little bit. And obviously, Anthony Thompson has form when it comes to loans. Like This is not a new space for him to play in. So I, I think it's a sensible move. I, I quite like it. That'll be a fascinating interview. And I can't wait to hear it. Like, <laughs> uh, like I want to know what Anthony Thompson thinks about doing the same the same play, but like, what is he doing different? And, and he did answer that question. Um, so I don't want to foreshadow too much, but I think there was a point you made a few one of the times you came onto the podcast ages ago about um, starting at microservices is a different starting point, um, and starting at we can build more of this ourselves, uh, which is why I thought this was interesting that they're looking to work with external vendors more and more, um, and actually how much of your architecture do you own, and and you know tech for tech's sake always gets poo-pooed. But actually, I really do think that once you understand modern cloud-based architectures and what they can do in terms of your business processes and how you can serve customers, then it really is a game changer. And, and people talk a good game about digital transformation, but you're not doing digital transformation if it's like a, a microservice on the top of a mainframe. Like It's digital transformation if you're digital all the way down. Yeah, I mean, so I wrote the questions for that interview and then I was too ill to do the interview. So I'm desperate to find the answers because <laughs> I thought the questions up. Um, but I, I, I do see your, your point, Simon. I think, um, and Simon and Simon, um, a, a lot of what the, the, what we're seeing here, actually, particularly from this particular player is a lot of putting things together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that digital service is the way down. Although I don't necessarily think you do have to do that to get mm. off the ground. I, I, I do think that if you're going to go into a market and try and find another way in, then actually, as I said, the, the Australian Australian regulator is so speedy with these licenses and it's kind of everything sort of stacked up and they're going to go boom, boom, boom. They're literally going to fall like dominoes. You've got to be ready to go there with something because everybody else is ready to go there with something. So maybe this is what you do to get your foot in the door and then you can step backwards and think, okay, now we've got some some money coming in, some, you know, some, some revenue being generated. We can do something else. Completely agree. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with working with the vendor that can do the right thing. We've seen countless startups bootstrap with prepaid card providers. We've seen countless examples of where uh, a vendor who's providing the right type of solution can do that for you. I think the insight was that you don't have to go to the traditional vendors anymore. You, there's a new class of vendor out there that can do this sort of thing. My point was more broadly, but they have to be thinking in this cloud-based architecture mode and model for it in order for it to start to make sense. That's the, the big gap. I think also, just one quick point, we forget that fintech isn't just the front end. Fintech is all the way down. So mm. there is an entirely new breed of back-end providers, an entirely new breed of infrastructure players. You mean the big banks haven't done digital because they've got an app? <laughs> but no, yeah, you're right. Those apps that are clogging up my phone and you know never load and everything else. You know what? I got a new upgrade from one of up, upgrade from one of an my upgrade. That's a time upgrade. Ooh. An upgrade uh, <laughs> recently from one of my banks, and they now let me log in with my fingerprint. So exciting! Goodness me, crazy. I think the the point about top to bottom is really interesting. From what I know from from mortgages in the UK, one of the big problems is you know you have these like long tail of of brokers 
that um that, that sort of make up a big part of the market but they're all you know one or two people and, and and therefore trying to disrupt and change technology is such a long process indeed this is why i think uh, habito and trussell are doing quite well because they're coming in from the broker end and trying to own more of that experience but you also see the big banks themselves getting into execution only mortgages where they're trying to create a digital only journey where you if you don't go through the broker they'll give you a better deal but the mortgage market isn't just about getting the mortgage it's your conveyancing and it's your solicitors um there was actually a really interesting project believe it or not by our three of all people um and yes i'm making a blockchain link um, <laughs> but they did something called the instant property network that they describe as amazon for properties and they've got together a bunch the land registry in the united kingdom estate agents banks insurance companies conveyances and tax officers to build like an end-to-end straight through process from sort of starting to think about buying a house all the way through um and i know there's uh, there's been services actually like this not in uh, new zealand but i think there's one in australia um that's a little bit like that that didn't require a blockchain so it's it's more the idea that's interesting to me um but i think that we'll increasingly see um people thinking about how they transform mortgages over time i think the the, the this kind of comes back to this open banking apis piece a little bit as well because i was in a conversation with someone uh last week and they were talking about you know sort of this this new broking journey and and one of the big problems they have is is just checking the status of a, of a mortgage and at the moment they literally have rooms full of people that all the big banks just answering the phone going yep it's still going or yeah we need more information and they're sort of saying well can we have an api and like you know how What's does that work API yeah yeah but we, can, we can send you a text message how yeah. does that work and it's, it's or, or that api wasn't in the open banking spec yeah, yeah. So, like we don't have that one sorry it wasn't the regulatory requirement and i think that's a, a mindset shift of like actually it's not what did the regulator tell me to do it's what could i do yeah. if i had a modern digital platform listen uh, we've got to get to our sponsor reel so we'll hear from you very shortly this deal sets apart. this economy okay, is we need to get down to business yeah. 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 the pressure is beginning business investment jobs the more you hear about brexit the less clear it all becomes when everyone else is shouting listen for the clarity behind the headlines subscribe to the financial times visit ft.com calling all fintechs banks developers are you looking at ways to use new open apis to create the next financial app are you looking to break into new markets the usa in particular finastra and microsoft are hosting the fusion one developer conference in London on the 21st and 22nd of May 2019, down at Tobacco Dog. Join this free open finance developer conference to upskill and open APIs, understand how you can tap into Finastra's 8,000 strong client base with your apps, and get hands-on technical walkthroughs with the platform and API experts. Register your place at Fusion One today online at fusionone.cloud. Join the open banking revolution, because after all, we're all innovators. Welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. At 11FS, we specialize in using the jobs to be done methodology to identify underserved areas of the fintech markets and the finance market and, well, just about any market. Um, we've released an in-depth report uh, applying jobs to be done uh, thinking to the world of personal finance management. And we've got 13 different video customer interviews and over 1,000 uh, quant results that uh, help build 
that report. Um, and it answers key questions like, how are current fintechs meeting customers' needs, wants, goals, desires, and solving for those jobs? What does the future of the PFM market look like? What are the opportunities in the PFM market? What is the most underserved and overcharged set of opportunities? What's the most important and the most painful job that needs doing? We like to think about customers uh, needing to make progress in their lives and there are constraints in their way. What's the future state they need to get to? Uh, if you want to uh, do some rock and roll Easter reading, um, then make sure you grab this report. You can grab your free copy at bit.ly forward slash JTBD PFM. That's bit.ly forward slash JTBD PFM. Do it whilst you're listening. Do it whilst you're commuting. I promise you, just download it on your phone and flick through it. You're going to want to send this to people. This is an amazing amount of report for free. Just go do it. Alrighty, let's get on with the show. Well, this is a bit awkward. A story comes from Finextra, and Halifax have been slammed for copying Monzo and Starling in their rebrand. Uh, days after their attempt at a rebrand uh, to compete with digital upstarts, social media users noticed that the bank's new identity may have taken the idea of competition a little too literally. Uh, the CEO of Monzo, Tom Blomfeld, tweeted an image of Halifax's mobile app redesign and pointed out that the card used in the advert still has Monzo's bank bin and includes the name of a Monzo staff member. Uh, others also took to Twitter to slam Halifax for choosing a teal-coloured card, the same colour Starling used for their virtual cards. Um, the rebrand was actually by uh, Rufus Leonard, the agency, and it's focusing on attracting a younger audience with a new logo and a new visual identity. Rufus Leonard, the agency, have replied to Tom Blomfeld's tweet, conceding embarrassment, but insisting that the image he posted was an early mock-up and since rejected by Halifax. <laughs> oh, It'd be awkward if they accepted it. I mean, this really is the agency messing up in a big way, surely. I, I don't know how this image got out, but... Um, it was in design week. Was it? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. It, it, gone, it must have gone through several rounds of approvals. But you know, like we we've seen this from, since the beginning. Like Monzo is a precedent-setting company. Uh, we do a lot of things that people said that you couldn't do, like using the logos of companies. When everyone said, like, I think you have to license all the logos that you put in your app. Like, um, we expect people to copy us. We don't expect them to copy us so literally. They take the name of one of our staff members <laughs> and a picture man. of our Flattery card. Simon. Yeah. Uh, and I think Starling probably feel feel similarly uh, triggered by the fact that the colours are actually a perfect match to Starling's um, colour palette. But, you know, it was a great distraction for an afternoon and uh, it was a bit of social media. It was fun, wasn't it? I, I guess the, the thing that stuck out to me about this one is there's a lot of big banks trying to think, what, how can we be inspired by the challenges? And if that changes something, like, uh, for instance, a lot of the big banks have now included gambling blocks and other forms of blocks in their, in their uh, banking apps, which is good for customers and good for consumers, and we should welcome that. I think Lloyd's Banking Group now has Google Maps locations of, of where transactions are occurring. Good for customers. If you're being inspired in that way, but you're doing it sort of yourself and you're baking it in properly... No argument with being a fast follower. It's actually quite a good strategy if, if you know you can't be the cutting edge uh, kind of uh, going after the latest customer, but you can serve millions of customers you already have far better. Surely that's a good thing. Uh, but when building a product and a service, starting really at the customer problem and coming to a design is not necessarily just a case of copying. Yes, be inspired, but also understand the customer problem uh, a whole load more. I mean, it's interesting to me because actually of the banking apps I have, Halifax is actually the best one. Mm. 
Um, it actually is. <coughs> I don't have Monzo. What are you talking about? The incumbent banking apps I have, I apologize. <laughs> obviously, Monzo is front and center. Obviously, the best. Um, no, sorry. I genuinely meant of the incumbent banking apps I have. Uh, Halifax is by far and away the best um, compared to a lot of the other banks I have. It they're still they still literally look like a website shrunk down. You know, I have to zoom in to see my own transactions and things. It's you know, as I was saying, like the recent upgrade to one of them was literally using my fingerprint. So it's interesting to me that Halifax would have have decided that this was the way to go, you know, as you say, where to focus your attentions, because they've, they've done quite a lot of work actually within the app. They're really heavily promoting open banking within their app. So, you know, they're obviously getting their heads around that idea. Um, you know, things like alerts and, you know, in, in, in app card locks, they've, they've got there. So I kind of think for me, it's sort of almost like feels like somebody else has come in and, and taken over the project for what their, you know, their, their, five-year, two-year, whatever it is plan looks like, because they were doing so well. And then they sort of like, Ooh. I think it's interesting that like it was an external design agency. And if you yes. have an external design agency, then their remit is like what pixels are going to appear on the screen. And at Monzo, our designers, we don't use external design agencies. Our designers are embedded in the teams and they're not thinking about what pixels go on the screen. They're thinking about like what is the user problem yeah. and what is the most, like the best way to solve that user problem in a way that makes sense to customers. I imagine they're even more external now than probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, so these, these, agency, uh, these agency deals that big banks do tend to be multi-year deals and cover a lot of stuff, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, the, the key thing for me is like, is it really innovation to sort of just copy? I mean, sure, it gives you maybe a little lift in user and you know engagement, but in the end, the point is, is it actually providing you something that the customer actually needs? Because yes, they may need it in other banks, but is it going to actually really lift that sort of user engagement, which... At 11FS, we talk to our clients about avoiding becoming the cargo cult. Um, and what I mean by that is if I, uh, the, there's the story of the Polynesian island uh, where the local islanders saw uh, people from foreign countries flying in. Uh, and when they saw people flying in, they were like, wow, this is magic. People have flying machines and, and that's amazing. And then they found a downed plane um, and I'm butchering the story. And, and I understand something like by putting on the outfits, they hoped that they could fly the, the downed plane and pull, pulling the levers. Mm. without understanding flight mechanics. Fundamentals. Uh, and, and so by not understanding the customer problem, by not understanding why the feature is there, sometimes you miss the ability. So yes, be inspired by great design from somebody else, but also understand the customer job to be done. I think that's a critical piece. And sit your designers next to your engineers. Here, here. 100% agree with that. All right. Uh, next story, um, Ant Financial are going to take on the Chinese healthcare market. So... Um, a story from Bloomberg, millions are rushing to join a wild new health plan from Jack Ma's Ant Financial. Um, Ant's uh, Bo, which means mutual protection, has attracted 50 million people since October, or more than five times the population of New York City. Uh, the company hopes to have 300 million users in two years, 20% of the Chinese population. Uh, and the product operates somewhat like a collective in which members contribute evenly to the payout as much as $45,000 when a participant is critically ill um, and Ant take an 8% administrative fee out of every payout. It's free to sign up. There are no premiums or upfront payments and disputes about claims are adjudicated by volunteer members. Super interesting model. 
Well, yeah, but a very, very, very old model. This is Indeed. what insurance used to be. And in fact, if you have, um, if you know anything at all about Islamic finance, which is an area I've, I've spent some time looking at, really interesting. They have a principle called takaful, uh, which is which is very, very similar. So in Islamic finance, you're not allowed to make any profit. It's one of kind of the, the rules of making financial products halal. Um, and this is almost exactly how it works. It's kind of the old school idea of like a community looking after each other. And everybody puts something into the pot and you only take it when you need it. Um, the idea there has always been that like you don't want to defraud somebody else because you could be the person who misses out next end. time. So like if you if you take money when you're not really that sick, for example, um, but then next time you really are sick, there's no money left. It's only you you're kind of shooting in the foot. Um, the interesting thing as well, I think, uh, here is that this 8% administrative fee of every payout, that percentage flat fee is actually a model that a lot of the insure techs are using as well. So like where historically um, you would pay your premium up front and then at the end of the, you, you know, the, the end of the, the, the year or whatever it was, financial year, if there was money left over, the insurance company would go, goody, this is all for us. Um, a lot of the new insure techs don't do that anymore. They either give it over to charity or they give it back to customers. There's a, sort of a few different models, but again, they follow this flat fee. Um, so, so to me, this is almost like it's taken uh, a lot of very positive elements. InsureTech is my bag. If you don't listen to InsureTech Insiders, it's my baby. Um, and it's available on iTunes now. It, it is. Um, but kind of this is this to me is, is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing um, Ant taking like an amalgamation with some very good ideas and putting them together. If it's free to sign up, there's no premiums and no upfront payments. How's it paid Make for? Money. The the flat fee that they take when they pay 8%, out. I think they got. But yeah. where does the money actually go into the pot from? Uh, so the whenever there's a claim, that's when the money is pulled from the people who signed up. Oh, oh no! Yeah. What? So it's like done real time. So like yeah. Margaret down the hall's gotten sick, so everyone's paying two yeah. p to pay ten. You know, yeah. two p to pay for Margaret. Yeah. So you, there's two different ways you can do. It. Like one is like everybody puts money into a pot, but then you have to have a, a trusted a trustee. Um, obviously here it's like you know volunteers. I think they said volunteer members. But again, that's that community idea. So kind of like you you have the you know, whether it's the, the elders, the elders in the village tradition, I what suppose. What an amazing idea. And, it's, and it's the, not new. It's very, very old. Can I just point out, though, 50 million users, they're on track oh, for 300, 300. million. Like, oh, mm. my goodness. It's almost I, like the NHS. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I think pay a little bit all the time without taxes. Yeah. Well, uh, this is, I think, where it's interesting because, it, as Sarah, you point out, you know, there's there's other businesses doing this, like, like sort of the lemonade model where, you, you know, that it recognises the fact that insurance incentives are just inherently wrong right you know it, it's in my incentive to, to claim more and it's in the insurer's incentive to sort of charge me more and, and just end up this, by default exactly yeah, and, and, and the idea of like having this this like middle piece where you're kind of screwing over the other guy instead of the insurer like makes it it kind of work and i think it's interesting it's also a little bit like um to your point about the nhs you know will we end up seeing these kind of buckets of risk because it's a bit like the sort of bought by many model where it's like you know I, I have this unique risk you know i have this weird poodle or whatever that i need health in, <laughs> i need uh, pet insurance for mm. so we all i won't tell Oki you said that yes. <laughs> he's a friend uh, of the show yeah yeah <laughs> Whatever we'll, we'll um, you know we'll, we'll club together and 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 sort of insure ourselves as a whole. And I, I just wonder whether you'll end up with you know ill people excluded, you know, excluded. But exactly. it's literally the NHS model well, Ex- yeah. with exclusions. And Jack Ma takes eight percent of all of the payouts, right? The, but the thing is, as well, you you do have to to look at it as well. The market is in. Um, if you look at the people who have signed up to it, an awful lot of them are, are, are rural, poorer rural yeah. workers, Uncertain. and they don't have any other access to yeah. any kind of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Like they don't, they don't. This is literally the only option they have. You know, it's a, you'd actually find something quite similar in India, I imagine. But they, an awful lot of them will have phones. 
Mm. And they will almost all have um, either, you know, Alipay, which is Amp Financial's kind of consumer-facing app, or, mm. or the Tencent equivalent, which is which WeChat. Um, so I think, I think the idea of it, I love. I love going back to this community idea. I just don't think I love that Jack Ma's doing it. No, no, exactly. <laughs> well, the Flutech down. Insider. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, exactly. It'll come down to sort of what sort of health outcomes can it deliver for a certain amount of input. I mean, it's pretty known that public health in some countries is good. Some countries like the US and private, it just does not work. It's just so inefficient. So mm-hmm. I guess if they can, you know, provide health outcomes at an efficient, you know, way, it's, I guess maybe he, he benefits, but in terms of financially, but, you know, it, that's it's what we ultimately do. outcomes, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. the, the matters impact mm. is, is so, so important. And, yeah. and, you know, there's a question about how you measure that, but with this stuff, like that's what we're all hoping for. That's right. Yeah. Alrighty. Next story. Derek White has waved goodbye to BBVA. And um, story comes from Finextra. Uh, US Bank, um, actually the, the bank called US Bank, not just a, a bank in the US, um, has named BBVA's Derek White as their chief digital officer. Um, and he was, of course, a f- veteran from BBVA and Barclays, um, and they're putting him in charge of a new combined digital team. Uh, US Bank, of course, is the fifth largest uh, commercial bank in the United States. White will be in charge of their enterprise-wide digital strategy, including innovation, digital products development. Um, and the with the financial sector in the midst of a digital revolution, US Bank has brought in someone who's led those innovation efforts um, at two banks of the vanguard of the new world. And uh, of course, at BBVA, he led a team of more than 10,000 people, and uh, BBVA did an awful lot of stuff in that time. Uh, one of the most well-known uh, kind of API platforms, arguably the best from an incumbent, and many other things as well. Banks shouldn't have a chief digital officer. It's like having a chief paper officer. Like, digital should be in everything you do. I think that's not Derek's fault, to be fair. (laughs) But I agree with you. Having a a chief something officer, um, like treating digital as a thing that's a department, means you don't get that thing. Um, But actually, when you look at an organization after Derek's left, like BBVA, you see that digital is baked in more to the organization. If you've done the job right, you should leave it better than you found it. Shouldn't there just be a digital, like a digital savvy CEO then? And and to to be fair to... um, BBVA, the Carlos Torres Villa, who's the CEO, comes from an engineering background. Uh, their um, former chairman, uh, Francisco Gonzalez, has a um, he was one of the first programmers on the old IBM punch cards, has a bit of an engineering background. So they're a bit of an exception to the rule. They I don't sort think of they're understood. an exception anymore. Anne Bowden used to write punch card software, and yeah. Tom Blomfield wrote our messaging service. So I think like CEOs being digital natives now is the new thing. And I think increasingly it's a competitive advantage and you will see organizations where the exec really does understand digital at a, at a deep level. Not I took a two-hour training course on digital from you know Muck Consultancy, but actually I get digital because I've worked with it in some way, will become a competitive advantage. I just have one comment. Guys, this is all great, but this is America. Like, I mean, all these things we're saying are fabulous within the European context, but I just don't think America's got that yet. I still think that this idea of, like, digital as a separate arm, digital kind of sitting over here, having a digital person, a digital team, they're there, pat you on the head, the investors are happy. Marcus? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but um, in my defense, that was Goldman starting an entirely new, like, bank. Yeah, which, um, which if you've got a difficult- rather than digitize, trying to digitize or digitalize whichever you, whichever way you look at it from the top down. Well, which completely agree on that. Trying to, uh, I think Derek did Herculean things at his previous institutions, getting a 
incumbent technology stack and an incumbent set of um, processes, business processes to be a bit faster with digital. But ultimately, I, I agree with you, the direction of travel is don't try and make the, you know, the sort of 70, 80 year old technology go faster and win the race. You know, think about what the new generation needs to be and how can we grow that up? Um, it's, it's like um, pensioners trying to win uh, 100 meter sprints. It's not going to work. No matter how much AI you have, you're not going to win that race. Um, so, I yeah. think he was digital officer at Barclays. And I mean, I guess these old institutions, what you said before, Simon, I mean, they're used to these sorts of words. They're used to having printers on every floor. I mean, we, we, we don't use paper. We haven't used a sheet of paper for five years. I mean, it just doesn't exist in our office. It's like, why would you need you it? You should definitely go to the trade <laughs> finance floor in one of these banks. I know. <laughs> shredders, <laughs> Pretty crazy shredders, stuff. Shredders, yeah. All right, next story. Um, uh, Facebook have called time on their person-to-person payments capability in Messenger in the UK. Story comes from Finextra, and they're shutting the service down in the UK in June after the uh, service failed to gain traction with consumers. Facebook got all the major UK banks and card firms on board for 2017's launch, um, and it launched in the US in 2015. To send money through Messenger, you just pressed a blue symbol within the chat and selected the payment option, um, but the two-way nature of the sign-up process appears to have been a significant stumbling block. Other transactions on Facebook are available, such as making donations to charities, but interesting setback for a big tech here, set against the context of Apple Pay with 200 million users, 50 million monthly active, and launching their Apple card. Well, just as an, sorry, an interesting point that um, hat tip to Sharon O'Day who sent this to me. Um, there's a tweet from um, a gentleman who I don't know called Matt Navarra. Um, oh, it was previously at the Next Web, so an ex-journalist, um, says that Facebook actually has a digital wallet um, tab showing on its iOS in the UK. So I don't think this is gone. I think this is, I think this is more thing in the back end. F8's in what, two weeks, three weeks? And I would not be surprised. Again, thank you to Sharon for this kind of this idea. If there's some back end jiggery pokery going on, because people in UK and Europe do not use Facebook Messenger, they do use WhatsApp, they do use Instagram. So if at the back end, and I've no idea how you would do this, and I'm looking at the engineers in the room, but if at the back end they can um, consolidate or align those systems whereby you can have payments that work either you know from Instagram to WhatsApp, or at least you know it's the same set of payment rails between WhatsApp. Facebook and Instagram, maybe that's the way they're going. I, I don't know, but it's an interesting concept, especially with this that lined up as well, this idea that like a digital wallet has suddenly popped up in the Facebook app on iOS. I, I was going to say, I, I mean, maybe short-sighted on my part, but I was wondering if perhaps this is just that like sending money to people isn't actually that useful of a, a thing compared to how it, well, it, it's useful obviously, but you know, compared to how difficult that is in the US market, compared to the UK, exactly, you know, like yeah, yeah. the way Venmo yeah. has to do this it's in the US, it, it's, problem, it's like yeah. a, it's a revolution that I can send you money without waiting a week. Whereas here it's like, we've already got faster payments. Yeah. That wasn't we have faster payments in the UK, but Monzo customers still love peer to peer. They use it all the time and they set up shared tabs and they shut up, yeah. you know, set up bill splits and everything else. But I think the, like one question I have is, is the reason they, they Facebook wanted to back away from this because they become an ASPSP, which means they'd have to provide an API for this as well. Yeah, so this is to do Ooh. with people who don't know. This is to do with open banking, PSD two, the licensing that they'd have to, the, the licenses they would have to get. And yep. we've often said on this show, like a lot of the reasons that you know um, Google, Facebook, whichever whichever acronym we're going for this week, um, don't want to become full blown banks and just play around the edge of payments. Is they don't want to go through that full regulatory process of becoming yeah. licensed financial institutions. So that that could very much be the case as well. It opens up some of the data that they you know 
Pride. I mean, yeah. they, 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 I mean, Facebook try very hard to make you do the shared bill thing. So I think I was a friend of mine had like a Facebook messenger group for a Hindu, and somebody said it's you know 125 pounds each, and then Facebook popped up and said, "Do you want to pay Emily 125 pounds?" No, go away. And also, how do you know that? That's not a way to get me to do that. Uh, where Facebook feels this more is probably in India, Southeast Asia markets where peer-to-peer payments are a much bigger deal via mobile because traditional banking infrastructure isn't as important. Um, there's two macro things I think going on at Facebook. One is the big push to integrating Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook. And two, did you see David Marcus, the former CEO of PayPal, the former head of Messenger, is now leading their investigations into the whole blockchain piece? I knew you were going to say crypto. Yeah, more blockchain. <laughs> right? So I wonder if they're trying to back away from regs entirely. So this kind of actually builds on your point, which if is... If they launch a crypto payment system, then they... Doesn't absolve them of having to do AML and KYC. Completely have to. They, and like, do you th- do you really think the regulators want to allow a new form of money transmission by a company that's already in a whole bunch of trouble for like doing things that aren't socially, you know? Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. Allow me to play devil's advocate for a moment. Um, their argument might go something like: um, if I have a physical wallet and there is cash in that physical wallet, and I take cash out of that physical wallet and I give you that cash. Um, then I have used, should you regulate the leather wallet on my hand? Um, So what they're saying is if you have cash that is custodied by you legally and you you use our software to send that cash that you custody to somebody else, has Facebook done a regulated activity? Yes, they have. I would agree with you, but they're trying to make a metaphor point there. So I think it's interesting. Metaphor, um, metaphor points don't win arguments in a court of law. The FCA is FCA not is fond is. of metaphor points, in my experience. And this is why I think they may have a couple of challenges, but still interesting that David Marcus is is no slouch, really nice, um, no. has a serious history, um, CEO of PayPal, um, ran Messenger for, for quite some time, and they are trying to in- integrate all of these things. I seriously think though the target market for a lot of these things arguably is not Europe. Europe the regulatory market is is harder than just about anywhere. Um, And Europe has the the lowest um, difficulty and issue moving money around because of how long fintech has been around. So it's going to be the the hardest one for them to win. All righty. Last story, our and finally this week. Um, Well, it's actually on YouTube. Um, Comedian Joe Lysett impersonates the boss of the Royal Bank of Scotland to get £8,000 back to a scammed customer um, from Joe Lysett's Got Your Back. So um, the nurse, Claire Leslie, fell prey to a scammer who claimed um, she'd been frauded from NatWest, um, and then she transferred her savings into two different accounts. RBS claimed the public should be able to spot scammers, and it's not their responsibility to return money to people that willingly give it away when they've been scammed. Um, so Joe Lysett actually impersonated the boss of RBS, Ross McEwen, to try and prove how easy identity fraud can be, including a fake Twitter account and run under Ross's name, which gained traction, and some of the tweets were actually printed in a London newspaper. Oh, wow, this is performance art. <laughs> I'm a bit confused. So she fell prey to a scammer yeah. who claimed she's been frauded from NatWest and she transferred her savings to two so, different so they, accounts. they called up impersonating NatWest. Uh, and said oh, that I someone see. had already fraudulently touched your account and you need to transfer money uh, to these safe holding like accounts. accounts. Right, it was quite interesting because it. it really picked up on like the limitations of SMS for SEA yeah. and, and, and like because they just sent a message. SEA? That lo- 
a strong customer authentication, sorry, yeah. um, that, that, that meant that they could just impersonate NatWest. And, and, you know, as far as she was concerned, they were sending her these activation codes seem legit. We have a podcast on strong customer authentication. If anybody's interested in finding out about more secure methods. Indeed. Strong customer authentication is moving away from SMS, definitely. Stripe and Adyen and others are moving into, starting to move that to banks. Stripe just bought a company today, right? Touch something, Touch Tech? Yes. To do SEA? Yeah. But more like... Authorized push forward is an incredibly huge problem. It's like 200 million pounds in the UK. People were being tricked into sending their money. And even technically sophisticated people are being fooled. There's a thing called confirmation of payee. It's it's going to do so much to help stop authorized push forward. It basically says before you send money, like if a scammer says you need to send money to this account, before you send money, you have to say who you're thinking, you, who you think you're sending the money to. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get the name right, like if you think you're sending money to your own account, at, you know, a different account number, you'll put your own name in and it'll be like, no, that doesn't name doesn't match. Are you sure you want to send this, this money? And confirmation of pay will do a huge, uh, will go a long way towards stopping authorized push forward. Um, I'm happy to announce today that Monzo have basically finished our authorized, uh, sorry, our confirmation of payee build. And we're working with two other banks. I want to call out Santander, who've been really, really quick, and Starling, who've also done a, a pretty good job and are almost ready. And uh, and uh, I also want to say, like, it's, it's, it's really a shame that UK Finance um, have basically unilaterally announced that everybody's going to be late because it's such an important thing. Like, why are the big five banks and their lobby group announcing that, you know, this thing's going to be delayed by 18 months. I, I can't wait for this because the number of times, again, going back to the earlier sort of story about like, can you, people you sort of know but don't quite know, and it's like, here are my account details, can you pay? For a Hindu is a classic example or a birthday present for a group of people or a wedding. You know, I actually, the Hindu I went on recently, I sent this lady £250, or I thought I did, but I had no idea if she'd got it because yeah. she didn't get back to me and, mm-hmm. you know, because she was very busy, that wasn't her her fault but for me as a consumer I cannot wait and I cannot believe it's taken so long and I'm just as frustrated as Simon is at the idea that like it could be there it could be so easy it's such an easy fix well not an easy fix it's a solvable problem people are solving it but banks saying oh that's going to be hard it's going to take a while oh we should push back on this oh I don't know about it's, it's almost like a plumber. It's like, oh, it's going to cost but, you, but though. But the money they could save themselves and customers. Mm. So it's not just customers. Well, yeah, and also the anxiety you could save vulnerable people from. Um, even you know, every time I go to make a, any type of faster payment or push payment, I'm always checking and checking twice and checking three times. There's a bit of anxiety, especially if you're doing a faster payment in the UK or a separate payment in Europe or even trying to do a swift payment and move money internationally. You always have that, like, have I got those numbers right? Mm. Like, have I, though? It's Is why that everybody, right? It's why everybody put, should be on Monzo and it's just an easy, like, there's the person I know them pay. Exactly. Demand this. your bank <clears throat> implement confirmation of payee. Sorry, Ben. No, you no, can have make a sensible you, point. <laughs> you put these sort of the name in of the person, and you wonder: does it actually make any difference if I put just some random thing that would somehow make no. it? You know, it doesn't. It's just crazy. It's like, why bother? It's crazy, isn't it? All right, it well, will in the future, though. Good. Can we, can okay. we completely clear? <laughs> yeah. That will make a difference in the future. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, thank you so much to all of our guests. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Freddie? Uh, at Fred Kelly on Twitter, creditkudos.com. Brilliant. How about yourself, Ben? C O G O. So Kogo.co. And Simon? Follow Making Monzo on Twitter where you can see everything that Monzo does live within an hour of it actually happening. And Sarah? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky or if you want more in tech, 
uh, you can find us on at Instech Insiders. That's our sister podcast, and it's fabulous. You should definitely go and listen. Do check it out. As for me, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or Simon11FS.com if you want to know how we build these products and services for customers without directly copying. Um, Alrighty, um, let us know at Fintech Insiders or email podcast at 11FS.com um, if you've got any stories that you think we should be covering. And don't forget, please, please leave us a review. Those reviews help us so much. And we do actually genuinely read them out loud in the office sometimes. It's quite fun. Um, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, Periscope, all kinds of good stuff. If you like fintech goodness, just Google us and have fun. Thank you very much for listening. And do not forget that you can go to bit.ly forward slash JTBDPFM for some Easter reading. Goodbye for now. 